Hello, my name is Sanjit Gupta. I'm a grad student at Cal and I listen to Berkeley Grocks every day. I enjoy the uh, celebration of sciences through radio. It's kind of like the uh, radio that I listened to uh, back in Bombay. Thank you. Come again. Good afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, platelets, Welsh, and methane. And joining us today is Dr. Shafiq Kadri to talk about the male menopause syndrome. Uh, in addition, you can find out what the glycemic index is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokotron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week. Right here on Berkeley Grok's. Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Um, I feel um, I feel thick. Or should I say uh, dense? Dense. Okay. Uh, in the uh, mental sense of the word, or the uh, girth sense of the word? Uh, actually, uh, in the sense of my blood. Ah, is it it's clotting? It's thicker than water. <laughs> uh, that it certainly is. It's a thicker than um, air, even. I would hope so. Um, so do you have any problems with uh, having uncontrollable bleeding? <laughs> Uh, only at certain periods of the month, usually on Friday. <laughs> you have urges, I guess. Well, that's just when I get into the knife fights. Ah, of course. Fight club, right? Right. First rules, I can't talk about it, though. So, um, it, it turns out one of the mysteries of how um, your blood uh, has these uh, biochemical um, pathways that induce clotting has been, um, been elucidated. Uh, I, I thought uh, the clotting mechanism was pretty well understood. It involved uh, like the antibody proteins and such. Right, but it turns out phosphate may actually play a pretty important role in this. Oh, really? What biologist Robert Roberto Docampo uh, and his colleagues at Urbana-Champaign have discovered is that inorganic phosphate polymers apparently are present when the platelets are stimulated by the uh, clot-forming factors. Oh, wow. It's uh, actually an essential component for uh, the cell signaling to induce these platelets to act the way they must when uh, when a clot needs to be formed. I see. So presumably then if you don't get enough phosphates in your diet, that might also uh, in, uh, inhibit, I guess, the clotting. Right. Oh. Right. So without these uh, phosphate granules, would not get the, uh, the clotting to occur. Okay. So that might actually provide some direction for uh, therapeutics yes. uh, when you want to have clot busters and such like that. Right. Um, what they, their more immediate goal is now to develop treatments for uh, uncontrollable bleeding. Hmm. Oh, okay. So if, uh, if people are in need of, uh, <laughs> if there are any hemophiliacs out there, where can they look then? Uh, our very favorite journal. <laughs> it can't be. And almost appropriate here. <laughs> the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, eh? Bloody right. <laughs> Penis. All right, well, going from bloody right to bloody hell. Damn right. (laughs) (laughs) 
so of course uh, I'm talking about the English language, but re- linguists are interested for quite some time why certain languages predominate over others. And uh, in uh, in the United Kingdom, there have been n- numerous dialects that have existed but have slowly died out as uh, mm-hmm. modern English has taken root. So we speak the language of the Jedi's, right? <laughs> Uh, they existed a long time ago. Uh-huh. In a galaxy far, far away. And uh, their influence can still be felt by the Metachlorians. They'll sense it. Why can't you? Uh, so one example for this is uh, Cornish, which was spoken on every street corner in Cornwall, for example, mm-hmm. in the early uh, 1200s. But by 1777, the language was extinct. And the same thing appears to now be happening to Welsh. Oh, really? Yes. And the question is, why is this actually happening? Why, why do languages slowly become extinct? Mm-hmm. And uh, this was actually a study that was taken. Uh, this was actually a study that was done by Delith Morris, a linguist at the University of Wales in Bangor, at the uh, United Kingdom. Right. And uh, she teamed up with Catherine Jones uh, from a Welsh language consulting firm. And what they did is they studied uh, numerous families that had Welsh-speaking parents in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they discovered is if family only had one fluent Welsh speaker, uh, then the chance of the child actually picking up the language was much, much less than if both parents actually spoke Welsh oh, really? frequently. Yeah. And uh, what they found is, in fact, that uh, in, in that case, parents would defer towards English rather than actually trying to speak some Welsh uh-huh. around the child. Uh-huh. And so this transfer was not as great. So does it say anything about why um, standard English is... Um becomes the dominant language? Uh, it might have to do with, uh, you know, sort of population fluctuations as, <laughs> uh-huh. as a language becomes slowly more prominent, then it becomes sort of the de- deferred language. And right. the minority language then slowly gets suppressed over generations, right? Hmm. Through this process where, uh, you know, you, you defer towards the majority language. Okay. Unless there's some sort of nationalistic movement to... Uh... Well, that's what they're suggesting. In order to actually preserve the language, you have to make a concerted effort to actually teach the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, thereafter. Mm-hmm. So if any Welsh speakers out there are interested in this, uh, they can take a look. It was uh, a report released online by the UK Economic and Social Research Council. You know, one day we may all be speaking Chinese. Or Jedi. So, Charles, do you ever worry that your food might be irradiated? With gamma radiation? Of course. And it glows uh, in the dark, right? Well, as long as it sort of transforms my uh, two-headed chicken into a three-headed chicken, I'll be happy. More chicken for me. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> More brains for you, too, right? Because I need a lot of those. So, uh, I guess a recent story from Australia, actually. Um, there was an incident where someone had reported a glow-in-the-dark pork chop in their fridge. And after some investigation, their uh, food authority had figured out that it was caused by uh, a harmless bacteria rather than radiation. Uh, okay, well, uh, I guess these are bioluminescent bacteria that just uh, exist in nature. Right, uh, called uh, Pseudonomus fluorescens. Okay, it's an adequate name for <laughs> fluorescing uh, <laughs> uh, bacteria. Uh-huh. It's actually not harmful, and uh, usually if you cook it, uh, these bacteria just die out. Oh, okay, do they still fluoresce? Probably not. Hmm, too bad. <laughs> It could, um, it could add a certain uh, joie de vivre to your meal. Mm-mm-mm. To tell if your food is really spoiled or not, if it's glowing while it's in the, uh, in the daylight, in the regular light, then you should be worried. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, again, I guess just glowing at all seems to turn a lot of people off. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that's a sign of freshness. I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, don't they uh, help spice up, like, uh, uh, sushi with a little bit of, uh, <laughs> make it look fresh? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was actually reported on BBC News uh, late last year, but there's a really nice summary in the uh, recent chemical and engineering news. All right. Soon to be hot cuisine. All right, and finally, uh, how about uh, glow-in-the-dark ice? Glow-in-the-dark ice? Wow. I, I guess if the whole world's becoming a glow-in-the-dark, huh? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, uh, it's our sort of uh, gradual assault on nighttime. To make <laughs> nighttime it... is overrated, huh? Uh, well, not for me. That's usually when I'm up. <laughs> uh, so uh, researchers are actually interested in uh, the oceans of Titan. Oceans of Titan? Yeah. Is that one of the moons of Jupiter? Yes, it is. And it turns, actually, no, actually, it's the moon of Saturn. Oh, okay. And uh, one of the uh, questions is actually, how do the atmosphere of Saturn... Uh, reach the composition that it currently has. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a large fraction of methane that's unaccounted for. <laughs> and they don't some big cow out there. Yeah, huh? they don't have a lot of uh, Titan cows <laughs> to to count for it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and what they actually have proposed is that there's this layer of methane clathrate, uh-huh. a compound that's uh, sort of solidified, right. that becomes vaporized by cryovolcanoes. Cryovolcanoes? Yes. Wow, that sounds like something from a video game. <laughs> Uh, Donkey Kong cryo, I guess. Uh, so it's it's kind of interesting because there are presumptions that there's these huge underground lakes of uh, ammonia-saturated water, uh-huh. which uh, volatilizes and bursts through the layer of methane clathrate right. and releases the methane into the atmosphere. I see. So that's the hypothesis that's uh, now been shown by planetary astrophysicist Gabriel Toby of the Université de Nantes in France. And he's uh, created a model of this, and uh, he suggests that now uh, astronomers go look for this layer of methane clathrate that should exist. Whether it exists or not, who knows? <laughs> hmm. Imagine if it could burn all that methane up. I guess we need a little bit of oxygen there. Right. Well, I'm sure it wouldn't smell so nice. But... <laughs> so if anyone wants to find out more about uh, methane in the, uh, out there in Saturn? This was published in a recent edition of Nature. And that is all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Gosh you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Dr. Shafiq Kagadri joins us to talk about the male menopause. So stay tuned. Thank you. 
All right, welcome back to the Grok Science Show. Well, the male midlife crisis is a notorious phenomenon. A man suffering from some unseen angst and sudden sense of impatience buries himself in his work, drinks too much, or takes up a sports car, expensive hobby, or new wife. Research has shown that a medical reason for this almost cliched crisis, the male menopause. But how can men and their partners cope with the many emotional, physical, mental, and sexual changes that accompany the decreased testosterone levels responsible for this universal change? Well, joining us today on Berkeley Rocks to discuss this issue is Dr. Shafiq Kadri. Dr. Kadri is a distinguished family physician, teacher, writer, and broadcaster. A gifted communicator, he has been a medical contributor to Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, and has published more than 700 articles on diverse health topics, ranging from andropause to zinc deficiency. Dr. Kadri is one of the upper echelon of Canadian MDs known as designated medical practitioners and serves in the state legislature of the government of Ontario. Dr. Cotter is also the author of the new book, The Testosterone Factor, where he talks about these issues surrounding andropause. Uh, Dr. Cotter, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. How are you? We're doing very well. How are you doing? Great, thank you. Okay, well, this is sort of an issue I think a lot of people might actually attribute just to psychological changes that are going on, but in fact, as you point out, it actually has a physiological basis. Absolutely. Well, men, for example, have a buried respect knowledge, intimate knowledge of testosterone, of course. The hormone of manhood, that's the hormone that super spikes in puberty, making boys go into men. Realizing now as physicians is that as men approach the midlife, as their testosterone system sort of conks out, fades out a bit, they start to experience a whole range of personality and physical shift, whether it's, for example, your energy, your ambition, your intellect, your emotions, and of course, a whole long list of physical changes as well. On top of that, it's our modern lifestyle that's really toxic and even, I would say, slightly poisonous for the testosterone system. And that's what we're trying to get out to America and certainly to men. I see. And uh, so you mentioned some of the symptoms, but uh, what are the basic symptoms of... Well, for example, the main beginning symptom, maybe first taste of the midlife that most men may experience is just a midlife paunch, you know, getting a bit of a pot belly. They're not really sure why. They're same diet habits, same exercise levels, if any, and they just seem to start putting on weight. And slowly but surely, that puts them on the pathway, potentially develop many things. For example, at risk for high blood pressure, at risk for high sugar, weakening bones, irritability in terms of personality changes, and of course, many other things that we're kind of trying to detail in the book. I see. Why, why is it that testosterone has these sort of widespread systemic effects? Well, testosterone, incidentally, it's a brilliant question. I appreciate it coming from Berkeley, California, one of the homes of our scientific progress. Testosterone as a hormone on a chemical basis affects every single cell of the body, mm. meaning kidney, in the brain, in the bone, and of course, when you have a chemical, which by the way is produced in quantities, if we want to get on the molecular basis, 10 billion molecules of this thing are produced per second, then you can of course appreciate the widespread chemical effects that it has everywhere, and it plays itself out in all different aspects of human life. Mm. And also the brain as well, how does it influence... uh, Well, for example, Let's say an individual does a good amount of exercise, and we detail some of the specific exercises that you can do to basically wake up the groin area, kind of focusing in on some of the pelvic region. And what we end up doing with a burst of testosterone is that actually communicates directly to the brain and helps to trigger the endorphins, or as you know very well, the onboard brain pleasure chemicals. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the runner's high or, you know, that that exercise euphoria that you might experience if you exercise regularly and well. 
Mm, indeed. So how many men, I guess, go through this, or what typical age do men usually experience this? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a good question. I'll answer them both. Yeah. All men on the planet, once they hit about age 35, 40, mm. every man there is mm. will start to experience a decline in the testosterone system. That seems to be part of our nature, part of the biological clock. But, of course, different men will experience it mildly, moderately, severely. Some may only find it a little bit on the irritability mm. side, some personality shifts. For example, their fuse becomes a little bit shorter. Mm. Other men will, for example, go through the questionnaires that we detail in the book, and they will score on a high-end danger red zone on all the different questionnaires, mm. whether we're dealing with, for example, exercise, diet, sleep, stress, and sexuality. So like any kind of phenomenon that we as doctors measure, there's a kind of a distribution, you know, kind of a, a bell curve. And at the age 40, there's something magical about that age, and that's the kind of age where we as doctors try to focus in on. Mm, I see. Is there some correlation between men who might have higher than average testosterone levels before entering the midlife crisis? Actually, it's a very good question. Yeah. For example, let me answer by analogy. Mm -hmm. A person who knows multiple languages will actually be slightly protected from developing Alzheimer's disease because mm. you can just say things in different ways. You mm -hmm. have multiple pathways to express the same thought. And similarly, if you have a, a, like a larger vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you have a little bit higher-end testosterone, not too high because that has its own negative consequences, mm -hmm. higher-end testosterone, more responsive, you will be more protected. And by the way, who are those guys? The one gentlemen who maintain their weight, who don't smoke, mm. who take care of their blood pressure, make intelligent, healthy choices with regard to so many other things. And those are the ones who actually preserve their testosterone system. I see. So is that then a recommendation then for men before they actually reach that age? Sure. For example, we as a nation are stressed, you know, job, family, money, too many meetings, too many things on the plate. And we know as doctors that the stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, basically are toxic poison to the testosterone system. And they will predispose you to a lot of things, whether it's, for example, ulcers in the stomach, high blood pressure, and even, by the way, decreased sexual performance. Mm -hmm. So many of the things that we do consciously or unconsciously, whether we allow ourselves to put on weight, whether we, for example, get our egos smashed on a regular basis, either at home or in the workplace or in whatever other setting, all of these things play out onto the mm -hmm. testosterone system. I see. Uh, so for men who have now like, passed that stage, what are the recommendations, what are the treatments? Sure. Well, part of what we want to tell people in America in this book is that if you do, for example, consult a doctor, and let's say they go through various questionnaires or it's determined that your testosterone system could use a boost, don't necessarily have to go and follow the exact medical model, which means to walk out with a prescription for a brand name pharmaceutical. Yeah. There are a lot of different approaches, even by the way, how to optimize your sleep, even by the way, how to optimize the way you sit from a testosterone point of view can affect your long-term testosterone system. How you sit? Yes, uh, well, here, here's the explanation. First of all, the crown jewels, as you know, are floating around in a free floating sack. Why is that? Hmm. Because the body, God, evolution, whoever, determined that the testes are supposed to be six degrees lower in core body temperature than the rest of the body. But what do we do? We're a nation of people who sit. Mm. We sit at home, we sit watching movies, we sit in the office, in the car, everywhere, in the doctor's office. And if you sit sort of scrunched up, and also, by the way, depending upon what undergarments you're wearing and all the rest of it, and by the way, throw in a laptop that heats your groin area <laughs> by another 10 degrees, 
All of these things over time Hmm. affect and play out your testosterone system. And by the way, this is one of the major reasons why, for example, sperm counts now in men are half of what they were Hmm. a generation ago. In fact, men count now for the majority of infertility problems. So is this a recommendation for boxers rather than briefs then? <laughs> yeah, and it gets into a much more elaborate yeah. stuff. Certainly mm. there's, you know, we obviously there's a little section on the whole undergarments thing. There's a section on how you can basically, you know, cool your insides and how you can actually, during the course of your day, if you know you're going to sit in a two-hour meeting or a two-hour movie, mm. what are some of the strategies that you can do to actually give, honor the testicular <laughs> temperature request? Because, as I say, it's a strange and rather simple thing. For example, if you use a laptop actually on your lap, I mean, this has all been measured, mm-hmm. especially if you, you know, God bless you, if you watch a DVD movie for like an hour and a half, you will actually, I mean, I would encourage our listeners to actually try that sometime. Just feel <laughs> the amount of heat that's actually generated. Right. And this actually affects, not only, by the way, your testosterone system, but it will even affect the quality, and I would say, I call it the integrity of the sperm that you'll be producing if you do this on a regular basis. Mm. Meaning, for example, you'll produce more malformed sperm. And as I say, this is, by the way, one of the first recommendations that doctors would make in infertility cases. Wow. Uh, Pan should come, I guess, with air conditioning then or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure somebody from Berkeley or, you know, maybe at Stanford will come up with something interesting over time. (laughs) Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, Maybe as a final note, what are the recommendations for men of all ages? Well, I would hope that men and those who love them, and especially the medical establishment, learns about the testosterone system. Basically, men, you have a bit of a nuclear chemical floating around in your system, which you can actually put to work for you. It's not just for puberty, sex, and reproduction. And there's a whole long list of strategies that we try to detail in the book. Plus, by the way, lots of self-assessment type of questionnaires to really guide you as to what you may be able to improve in your own life. For example, whether it's your sleep habits, sexuality, level of exercise, diet, even some of the nutritional supplements that we talk about, and even daily stress. Mm, okay. Well, I certainly hope uh, people will go out and uh, take a look at the book. Uh, Thanks, sir. All right. Dr. Shabit Kadri is the author of The Testosterone Factor, uh, which is out in bookstores. Uh, you can take a look at it to preserve all your bodily functions there. Hey, thanks a lot, Charles. And this is Berkeley Grox you're listening to. In a few moments, the Grokotron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week. So stay right there.
Well, here we go. It's the Grokatron 5000, and the Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Young and Sprightly or Midlife Crisis. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, are they young and sprightly, or are they suffering a midlife crisis? Dr. Kadri, ready to play a game? Sure. Okay, here we go. Young and sprightly or midlife crisis, item number one, fossil-based fuels. Uh, oh, uh, midlife crisis. Fuel is, as you know, fossilized animals that have been baked forever and ever, so there's <laughs> kind of an age factor there, so uh, that's where we get into the midlife. Okay. Uh, number two, commercial radio. Oh, young and sprightly. I mean, everybody's, you know, rocking, trying to do their Howard Stern <laughs> imitation. So generally speaking, I mean, I do lots of radio shows, and basically people are kicking and rocking away. Oh, okay. They seem to be getting uh, attacked by the young upstart satellite radio nowadays. But <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. Uh, okay, number three, Viagra. Uh, midlife crisis, a valid option, you know, reminds doctors and reminds people that sexuality is an important thing, not to be just surrendered with age and actually plugs into testosterone as well, because better sex leads to better testosterone, <laughs> better testosterone leads to better sex and all the other health benefits. Yeah. All right. Uh, number four, uh, young and sprightly midlife crisis, James Bond. Hmm. I would also go with the midlife crisis because mm. for me, the, my favorite Bond of course, was Sean Connery, and nobody can tell me that they can replace uh, Goldfinger. <laughs> There's this great little line from that, which I actually say to my kids, you know, the light you are looking at, Mr. Bond, is a new form of light not to be found in nature. It is called an industrial laser. <laughs> and my kids actually repeat that line to me, so I'm still a Sean Connery fan, and of course, that man's probably about 75. He just had an operation for some kind of cancer, I think, well, too. I think you'll still be Bond in the eyes of many people. Yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. All right, and finally, number five, Young Spratly Midlife Crisis, the Bush presidency. <laughs> well, let me bury most of my comments within that uh, laughter. <laughs> I would say young and sprightly because you can see how young and progressive and wholesome Dick Cheney is and President Bush is and how they're out there for the common people, not the people who own large corporations. And they're not, as you know, awarding large defense contracts to their friends. They're trying to really increase the status of public education and health care for the common folk. So definitely young and sprightly on the Bush administration. All right, well, I'm, I'm sure they'll be glad to hear that anyway. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, uh, Dr. Kadri, I do want to thank you again for uh, sticking around to play our game, The Grokatron 5000, and, of course, uh, talking about your book, The Testosterone Factor. Thank you. All right, thank you. Take care. And Bruce Lee, back with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is a, a glycemic index? What glycemic index shows how quick the sugar from your food goes into your blood? And that is a glycemic index. So potato, your sugar... Quick, go into the blood. All right, folks, it's Joe Ubman, motivational speaker. How you doing? Can I get a hey, what's up? I knew we could. Be positive. You got to be positive just like the gram-positive bacteria. But what are they? So if you have the power of positive thinking, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you're still a special person. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.